Welcome to the Hunt the West podcast, where it's all about getting outside, experiencing the outdoors, and having epic adventures. At Hunt the West, my number one goal for you is to get out and hunt. I'm Skylar Harrison. Thanks for tuning in today. In this episode, you're going to hear the story on my first solo Utah archery mule deer backpack hunt. That was a lot of words to describe this hunt, but the yeah, so I was a solo. This is Utah archery mule deer. This is early season, you know, late August, early September, and I am on my own on this backpack hunt. So I definitely learned a lot about what tactics work and what tactics don't, how to adjust your strategy based on the conditions and how to be successful. So this is a whirlwind story. So I hope you stay tuned for all of it. it it's it's a good one. <laughs> the biggest book of my life is in this story. So, but before we get into that, just a reminder, if you want to support the show, make sure you use the links in the show notes. And as always, you can buy merch, you know, t-shirts and mugs and hats and stuff like that at huntthewest.us slash shop. So make sure you check that stuff out. All right, let's just go day by day here. I'm going to tell you everything I learned and tell you the story about this amazing adventure. It really was such an awesome adventure. I was five days backpacking alone and in the Utah high country. So I actually went in a little bit early. I went Monday, Monday night late. I actually drove over to Ross's house, picked up a tent because I still, mine was on order. It hasn't, or hadn't arrived yet. It has now. So I'll, I'll talk about that later a little bit too, I think, but I dropped or I went over to his house to pick up this tent and then he was nice enough to let me borrow it. And then I uh, had the canvas cutter in my, in the back of my truck for that first night because I was, I arrived at the trailhead at like 1130 or midnight or something. And I was just going to sleep in the back of the truck and then hike in early in the morning because it was, it's about four, four miles or so, a little bit more than four miles to get into where I was going to camp. And I didn't want to do all of that because it's like 3,500 feet of elevation or more. And I didn't want to do that at like midnight. So I decided to just hike in early in the morning. So I woke up at like four, hiked in early in the morning. Actually on the way in, I felt this tiny little hot spot on my, on my heels. And so I stopped immediately and just used that Luco tape that I've talked about before and did a real quick tape because I knew that I didn't want to let it get too far out of hand. So that Luco tape is awesome. It, it, st- it stayed on all five days, probably would have stayed on even longer than that. I, I took a picture when I first put it on and then I took a picture after the five days and you'll see like it just, it looks the same, like it just stays on and it just prevented all the blisters and all the spots that I get a little tender after a long week of hiking around. So anyway, I'll post a little picture of that. Um, I think this is episode 63. So huntthewest.us slash 63. It'll be in the show notes too, but the pictures will be on the website. So if you want to go see that, you can. But anyway, that Luco tape, that stuff is awesome. I'm going to actually even make a link for it exclusively because I talk about it so much. So um, I'll do that but it'll be huntthewest.us slash leucotape, and that'll take you where you need to go if you want to buy some. And that's spelled L-E-U-K-O-T-A-P-E. So like Luco, L-E-U-K-O-T-A-P-E, leucotape. Or you can just go to huntthewest.us slash tape if you don't want to remember how to spell it. Either one of those, I'll make them go to the same place. So anyway, I wrap it around my lighter and I keep it in my little gray pouch. So anyway, that was way too much about that. But anyway, on the hike in, that that was the only thing that I had to stop and like, you know, take care of. But I was glad I did because I didn't have any issues with blisters. Okay. So anyway, I got up in there right at first light, right as I, like I wanted to, I saw three bucks right off the bat, right at first light. And they were crossing down in this area that I later started calling Buck Alley because 
on Onyx, I mark every deer that I see pretty much. And then later on, I can look for patterns. And it's a lot easier to just understand visually where all your pins are. And then you can click on them and see what times things are and things like that. So anyway, I make note of that. And then I noticed that all of these deer that I was seeing were in this line and it was this little drainage. And so I started calling that buck alley because it was like, they're all there. So anyway, there's a little tip for you for Onyx maps. Just mark everything that you see, take the time to do that. So anyway, I got to camp, I set up and I glassed the rest of that morning and the afternoon. So the, the first tactic that I'm going to talk about is glassing because I've, I don't know, for me anyway, I think high country mule deer and I think glassing is the, is how it works. So, and this hunt was no exception. I had some of my most productive glassing time was actually between noon and 3 PM, which is, I feel like most people are taking naps or like chilling at camp. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I was chilling at camp, but I was also glassing. And that's the advantage of being, um, when you're backpack hunting, um, that style, you can camp from a glassing point and or be re- really close to one and you just save so much time on hiking and you get more sleep which is nice and I was also able to do all the little camp chores and kind of glassing at the same time because you can kind of just glass and see where the deer are, deer are and then do your little thing that you have to do like filter water or cook dinner or whatever and then you can go back to glassing and so just having camp right on a glassing knob it makes things a whole lot easier so anyway that first morning i saw those those bucks walking in i got to camp and then between noon and 3 p.m i must have seen like 12 deer in the middle of the day and so anyway that makes things a lot easier um when you know where the deer are and you can make a plan for the evening so you just catch them moving you catch them standing up switching beds catch them feeding or whatever you do but um even in the middle of the day, they move and you'll, you'll catch them. So if, as long as you're glassing and you just kind of keep scanning through, looking for movement, having your, your binos on a tripod is that just makes glassing a whole lot easier. So anyway, I saw a bunch of bucks. Most of them were bucks. There were only a few does that I saw actually on this entire hunt there that were just in a really bucky area, I guess. And, uh, I was going to hunt anything. So let me kind of be clear on my goals for this hunt. Cause that kind of colors everything all the decisions that I made. So my goals for this hunt were just to get a buck with my bow. And I knew at least there was one really big deer in the area. It was one that Ross ran into and he had a picture of. Um, And uh, I'll get into that buck a little bit later, but but I was just after any deer that got me excited and that I liked. So I wasn't going to be picky since I have yet to kill anything with my bow. And sort of my philosophy is that you kind of just need to get lots of experience stalking in on deer and making it happen before you can be picky. I mean, you, obviously you can shoot whatever deer you want, but it takes a whole lot of skill and uh, a tactical advantage to kill a big mule deer with a bow. And the bigger they are, the harder they are to fool. So you need to practice on those easier, dumber, younger deer, and then you can learn a lot more quickly, fail quickly, and often um, you're just going to speed up the learning process. So Anyway, that was kind of my philosophy going in. I was going to stock on any legal deer that was in a stockable position so that I could get the experience of stocking in, make those mistakes, and learn quickly. So I figured out pretty quickly where the deer were hanging out because they were moving in the middle of the day, and then I made a plan for the evening. So I stocked in on this group of deer that had a couple little two points and a spike and a doe. And as I was getting closer to them, I actually got cliffed out on the way to them, and I had to make this big, huge detour and go all the way up to the top of the mountain, go around the cliffs, come back around on top of them. And so anyway, that was a huge mess. Um, That was just came from 
not knowing the area exactly, not knowing where the cliffs were. So I learned that pretty quick. I got in pretty close to those deer. I got to about 80 yards and then waited for them to come the rest of the way. They were feeding toward me with the wind in my face. So I think that they just caught me moving because all of a sudden they just got nervous and ran off. And I don't know. I don't know exactly what happened. I know they didn't smell me. So that was kind of the first lesson. Um, so because they, they must've just caught me moving. So even if you don't directly see them, so they were behind a tree, but they must've just caught some kind of movement because they, I don't know, they saw something unnatural and they just got out of there. So even these little young deer, just little two point and, or a couple, two, couple little two points and a spike. And I think there was one doe in the group. So even if you can't directly see them, if you're behind a tree or something that if they catch that movement, they're going to get out of there. So you even need to be careful, even if you have some cover, because even these young deer were able to, to figure it out that they should not stick around. And then also they ran up this crevice behind this cliff that was like, I didn't think that there was an escape route right there. I was like looking at this area. I'm like, okay, I have them cornered, which you should just kind of assume that mule deer are never cornered. They're always going to find a way out and they're probably not ever going to be in a place that they can be cornered. So anyway, I learned that too. I was super impressed at this, this escape route, which I marked on Onyx maps because... I was like, I didn't even think it was there. And then I went over there and I was like, wow, there's like a little channel right here up this cliff. And then they just went around. So I like noting escape routes on Onyx maps too. So the more you document, the more it all comes together. And then you can learn the area a lot faster. One thing I was worried about on this hunt was water. So after that stock was blown, I started making my way back toward camp. And, um, but early in the season, we had found a little water source close to camp when we hiked in, but when I got there, it was dry. So luckily Ross had stashed some water at camp, um, but that was running low too. And the nearest water was about 0.6 miles as the crow flies down a thousand feet of elevation. So that wasn't a super fun hike that I wanted to make, you know, every day or so to get more water. And so I was looking for some, a water source closer to camp. Luckily, when I came back to camp, I found another little trickle that was a lifesaver. <laughs> so I mean, God was looking out for me at that point. So it made staying at that camp a lot easier and having that little trickle of water. It was only like 200 yards away from camp too. So just a, a gear update here. I guess it's not really an update because I'm still using the same thing. But for water filtering, I'm using the Sawyer Squeeze and I use a three liter platypus bladder as a dirty water bag. So the best thing about this filter is how lightweight it is and how small. They even have a smaller version of it. It's called the Sawyer Mini. I've used that before too, and it's even smaller and lighter than the regular Sawyer Squeeze, but the flow rate is quite a bit slower and it tends to clog up faster than a regular Sawyer. So I just use the regular one. It's a tiny bit heavier, but it is definitely worth it because you don't have to worry about it clogging as much. And it works really well if you take care of it by flushing it out when you get home and then not letting it freeze. One thing that makes this filter even work even better and be a lot more practical is this thing called the fast fill adapter that um, Sawyer sells along with it. You can buy, I think it's like 10, 10 bucks or something. It's called the fast fill adapter. And uh, especially if you are using a water bladder to drink from, you can cut the hose on your bladder, attach this quick attach thing that comes with the fast fill adapter that snaps right onto the adapter. And then you screw your filter onto your dirty bag and squeeze it straight into your bladder without having to take it out of your pack. So the fast fill adapter 
comes in handy too, um, which I used a lot on this to fill your bladder bypassing the filter. So if you have clean water in a different bag or a water bottle or something, you can just screw the fast fill adapter onto your other clean water source and squeeze it straight into your bladder. And it is way faster than like opening up your bladder, pouring it in the bladder, you know, putting your bladder back in the back, in the pack, all that. So that fast fill adapter is awesome. And then the Sawyer squeeze just screws right onto the platypus bag. And uh, and then you can just squeeze it straight through the filter into your bag. It's awesome. So anyway, that was day one. It was, it was a pretty good day. Got a stock in, found a water source, and glassed up a ton of deer. So it was a good day. So day two, woke up early, started glassing from camp, and then I found all those same bucks. I don't know if they're the same bucks. There were some some bucks that we had seen on the scouting trip earlier, and um, but they were all up high. So anyway, we had this, I have this other glassing point higher up in the basin and I had a good vantage point of the lower part of the basin from camp and then about half of the upper basin. And then if you go up to the higher glassing point on this plateau, you can see the entire upper basin and then part of the lower basin. So I decided to cut off this group of deer that I saw with a nice group of bucks. And I got up there and then I, I, I made a mistake of watching. I watched this big three point and he goes into his bed and I couldn't see exactly where he bed, but I just knew it was in this particular group of trees. And then this other group of deer stayed over on the other side. And then I decided to walk near that area where the, the big three point had gone into and then hoping that I wouldn't just hoping that I wouldn't spook him as I got closer to the other deer. And then I was hoping that if there, if I did spook the big three point that he would spook the other way and not go toward the deer that I was going to stalk. So anyway, I was wrong, of course, and he spooked and went directly toward the deer that I was heading after. So I couldn't see exactly the route that he took. I just knew it was in there and um, I knew he was heading that direction. So there was a chance that he didn't spook them. But anyway, I had, I had glassed the area enough to know the travel routes and I could pretty much discerned that he probably took the other deer with him. But since I couldn't see directly, I just decided to continue with my plan anyway. And sure enough, the deer were gone and they had, I had no idea where they ended up. I kept having this problem of sound too. So as I would get close to things, the ground was just like really crunchy, a lot of gravel and things were dry. It was just, I could see that stalking in on stuff and still hunting was going to be really difficult with the conditions like the dry gravel crunchy crunchy grass it was just not going to be an effective way of hunting with how noisy the terrain was so i figured because of this that i i knew that the the best approach is probably going to be to glass them up figure out their where they're going to come from or going to and then ambush them because stalking in on the bedded deer just was not being it was not effective um so after I blew that stock. I mean, I was, it wasn't even a stock. It was kind of, I was just trying to cut them off and then they never showed up. So after that, and I was like annoyed with all the crunchy conditions and then it just dumped rain, which is good because we need it and it made everything quiet. But you know, rain kind of stops you from hunting a little bit. So especially because my rain gear. So anyway, I've, I've talked about rain gear the last, uh, I've mentioned it in in the last couple episodes, I think. And by the way, on this, on this trip, I only brought a rain jacket because there was one day that I knew that was going to rain and the forecast said it was going to rain all day. And so I, I didn't want to bring my rain pants too, because I just, they're not super functional for me. And anyway, I usually just hold up under a tree. So the, I I brought the rain jacket, but then I actually never used it. And I've mentioned my reluctance to bring rain gear. And this just, this trip kind of confirmed what 
I already have believed, which is I, I just hardly ever use rain gear. So even when I have it, sometimes I don't even use it. So I never used my rain jacket on this trip, even though it rained three of the days. And the only reason I brought it this time, because yeah, like I said before, it was it, one day it was supposed to rain all day, but it didn't even rain all day. It just had one pretty bad storm for like an hour or two and it was still going on and off. So anyway, I just use the cheap fraud talk frog togs. They're like 30 bucks for the jacket and pants. And, uh, they're just like bare minimum to get you by if you need to like be outside in a rainstorm. Um, anyway, I, because I mentioned this last episode, I got a, a pretty nice email from a listener about rain gear and his name's Aaron sent me a link to some Cabela's rain gear that he says was a pretty nice middle ground that he's used on a bunch of trips. It's called the Cabela's space rain jacket it runs $90 for the pants or $90 for the jacket and the pants are like $70 or $80. So any if any of you are somewhere in between and you don't want to drop $300 on really nice rain gear, but $30 frog togs aren't going to cut it for you either. If you want something a little more robust than a frog tog, but you know you don't want to break the bank, then that might be a good option. The Cabela's Space Rain Jacket. So I don't know. I've never used it in person, It, but thanks to Aaron, that was a, that was a good little tip to find a little middle ground there. So anyway, I went back to camp to glass. I went back to camp to glass for the evening and see where things ended up because, you know, I had walked through there and stirred everything up. And then after the storm blew through, I went around back to camp and I was glassing that area again. And I saw this coyote just chilling right in what I called the Mecca of the deer feeding area. So I didn't see any deer in there that evening. And, but I did spot some giants way up higher in the higher basin. Like the the little sliver that I could see of the highest part of the basin from camp, I'd see just these two huge deer, the biggest deer that I've glassed in the area. But I couldn't tell what they were. I knew that they were four points in the group, but they were over a thousand yards away and I don't have a spotting scope. I just have my vortex, you know, 10 by 42 diamondback binos which are great for what I need. Um, but I started to get pretty excited at this point because it was the biggest deer I'd seen. And there were two of them. And I had seen this really nice tall three point, which I was really happy. I would have been really happy with. And he was, but he wasn't very mature. He was just like a, like a solid three point. So anyway, now that I saw these big deer up high, that was the plan for the following morning. So hopefully spot those deer in the same area, then get up higher and get in a better position to make a move if an opportunity presented itself. So the next morning I glassed in the morning and I saw that there were two pretty big bucks and they were just a little bit lower than the night before. And I assumed that they were the same ones, but I couldn't tell exactly. Um, They were moving pretty quick and then all of a sudden they just disappeared and they just showed themselves for a few minutes at first light and then they disappeared in the trees soon after. And so I didn't get a good look at them. I just knew that they were big and then the that they went down into this group of trees and I couldn't see very well from my vantage point at camp. So I went up to the upper glassing spot, which actually is like I measured it on Onyx using the line draw feature. And it's actually only 700 yards as the crow flies, um, but it's 600 vertical feet and it takes me about 20 minutes to get up there because it's like, it's pretty steep. There's lots of boulders and rock faces, the scale, and you have to kind of zigzag. So I don't know exactly how much distance I cover getting up there, but it's way more than 700 yards because <laughs> you can't walk in a straight line. So anyway, I saw those bucks go up there. And so I kind of hustled up there. I was going a little too quickly. And of course I accidentally went up on this bench too fast and spooked three bucks right out of their beds. And it was just a total missed opportunity. I should have been on my toes. I should have been 
going more slowly, paying attention. And honestly, I just wasn't expecting to run into deer because the wind was going straight up to them and they didn't spook until I crested the bench. So anyway, that was a pretty big bummer. <laughs> but of course I noted on Onyx the, where they were at the time and then they where they went. So that future reference, I could, I could know an escape route or where a buck was, or there were three bucks in this case. And they were all like pretty small deer, like a couple two points and a three point, but nothing, nothing mature. But again, I didn't care. I was, I would have shot any of them <laughs> because, you know, for the experience. So anyway, I let those deer go. I mean, I spooked them, but anyway, I didn't pursue them. I, and then I made it up to the glassing plateau up there around 10 a.m. And the the plan for today was that I had, I had decided earlier that I was going to just glass all day long. And to make sure that I did, I brought my jet boil and my dinner so that I would have no excuses to stay until dark because I could just stay there all night and then hike or all, all day until dark and then hike down in the dark. And I knew that if, you know, I, I didn't want to have the excuse of like, oh, I'll just cook dinner and I'll glass from the bottom. Like I didn't want to have that excuse. So I brought everything with me. So I got there around 10 a.m. and then I was glassing all day and I was glad that I glassed all through the middle of the day because I caught the biggest buck I've ever seen in real life moving and he was moving at noon. He just popped out of nowhere and I, I looked more closely and I looked and it was this buck that we called Ironside. This is a giant three by four and he has double eye guards on his right side. This buck's left side is just a big, huge, solid three point. And his right side is is just really impressive. His right side is a decent four, but the main beam kicks out really wide. And then he has a double eye guard on that right side. So Ross first spotted this deer during scouting season. He got a picture of it. And uh, I'll post that picture on huntthewest.us slash whatever episode this is, what did I say? 63, probably 63. If it's not, it'll be in the show's notes. <laughs> I don't know what episode this is going to be, but I'll, I'll post it there. And so, uh, yeah, we started calling him Ironside because Ross call, started calling him that because of the double eye guard on one side and then the single eye guard on the other. It kind of reminded him of iron sights on a gun. And then that morphed into just calling him Ironside because that right side is just like so awesome. Anyway, he came out, but he was only out for like 10 minutes at noon and he just switched beds. He kind of fed along and then switched beds. But had I been taking a nap or even just stopped glassing for 10 minutes and like zoned out and ate my snacks or whatever, I would have completely missed him. So when he rebedded, had I not seen him move into that second bed, I would never been able to see him at all. I could barely see a couple of antler tips in the shadows if he moved. And even after I knew exactly where he was, whenever I'd glass somewhere else and then come back, I had a really hard time finding him because he was just so buried in there, just in this deep, dark timber under this rock in like this giant snag. Like you wouldn't even think that our deer would be in there because it's so thick. And I'll also mention right here that it really makes a difference when you're glassing from a tripod. So I highly recommend putting your binos on a tripod. It's going to make a huge difference and it's almost unbearable without a tripod once you put your binos on a tripod. <laughs> I use the little Vortex tripod adapter. I think it works with most, if not all, models of binos and I'll be sure to link that in the show notes and you can find it just right there in your podcast app or you can go to huntthewest.us slash 63. So I'll put it in there. Definitely put your binos on a tripod because what happens is you'll be glassing through the trees and you'll just catch a little ear that flicks or something or a tail or something. And without seeing, being able to see that relative motion, if you're just even a little bit shaky, free handing your binos, you're not gonna see that little movement. 
And even when I knew where this buck was, I would just have my tripod fixed on that spot. I'm like, I know he's in there somewhere, but I could not see him until he moved. And he would just do a tiny little head turn and you'd see the antlers shift. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's a deer in there. So without the the tripod, you're not going to be finding deer in the middle of the day, especially when they're bedded. Like it's just going to be really, really hard. So anyway, put your put your glass on a tripod. So anyway, I glassed all freaking day and I just watched this buck and I just locked in the tripod pan head and I looked at him every couple minutes, make sure he was still there and that he hadn't moved. And he was only about up, like I said, for 10 minutes feeding and then he went in that deep, nasty bed. Then he stood up about two hours later, around 2.15, and he fed back to his other bed. And he went behind this little pathway of rocks right at the head of the basin. And all the wind just funneled to this rock that he was sitting behind. And I couldn't see him once he went behind the rock. And there's just no good way I could see to stalk in on him. I also didn't know exactly where he's bedded. I knew he was behind this little band of rocks, but he didn't come out on the other side. And even though it was only about 50 yards long, this band of rocks, I didn't want to stalk in on him without knowing exactly where he was. So I just sat and I watched out either side of that band of rocks waiting for him to come out, hoping that he would do the same thing that he did last night, feed out below, and then that would give me enough time to get above him. Because like I said, the wind is just funneling right to him. And then if he fed out, I would either stalk in on him or wait to him to feed past me or something. So anyway, I had no choice but to just wait. So I waited. So he fed out for a little while. He f- he rebedded behind that band of rocks around 2.45. And then I watched that spot until 5. At 5 o'clock, I had to go do my duty. And I hurried back as soon as I could. And I came back from the other side of that tree. And I could see with a, my naked eye that there was a deer standing right next to the place where this buck had bedded. So jump back on the binos. And I, I hurry and look. And I see a completely new buck that I've never seen before. And he was big too, like this uh, giant buck. Like, I don't know. They're all giant to me. <laughs> like, um, once you see, they're, they're just a mature deer. I don't think most people would consider these giant deer. Like, I don't know what they would score. And I'm, I don't know how to judge score very well. I just know that all the deer that I had been seeing before, these two bucks, they were just pretty immature deer. Some of them were bigger than others, but these were mature deer. So this one that came out, he was really, really tall, taller than Ironside, but he was a little more narrow and he was a straight three by three frame, but he had like this four inch kicker on his left G2. So he looks like a three by four, like a small crabby three by four, or at least the four point on his left side. But it was actually, if you look at him closely, he has a just a giant three point frame. And then on that left side, it was actually just kind of an inline kicker off the back. That kicker would have been his normal G2, I think. But the, I don't know, the way it was growing, it looked like more more like just an extra, even though it was in line. I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain. But anyway, he came out and he was just standing there right in the sun and he was really silver in color and he just looked so majestic standing there and he was just this really smooth silver coat. His antlers were silver velvet and he just looked like a stallion. So I named him the silver stallion. So I'll just refer to him as the silver stallion. And so they're both three by fours, but this, the silver stallion has his bigger side is his left side and iron side is his bigger side is his right side. And and Ironside is more red in color, more of a traditional, you know, red, orange, you know, summer buck color. So the silver stallion came out exactly where Ironside went embedded. And the way he kept looking back at the spot where he came out of, I could tell that Ironside would be soon coming out of that same spot. So I looked on the map and I found, 
a, a little spot that I could creep up to and have a 35 yard shot. So I could, I could range with my, my range finder and see where he was going to come out and then draw a line on, on X and it was going to be a 35 yard shot. And I confirmed that with the range finder too. The problem was this, this darn wind, you know, the way that this, the wind was, it just looked like everything was funneling right up to that rock from any way that you, you approach it. The only way to get above him was to get like on these cliffs. And I mean, they're impossible. Like you'd need to rappel down to get above him. So it was just impossible. So I, I was on this plateau in the middle of the basin at the top and we had kind of this prevailing wind coming up the up the basin because there was this storm rolling in. So I decided, you know, knowing that Ironside is probably going to come out pretty soon, I decided to just move a little closer and see what the wind was doing over there. But I didn't want to commit to stalking him if the wind wasn't going to, to cooperate, you know. So, but if I waited too long, I might lose my chance and not be close enough to make a move. So I just took, a, you know, made a small decision that was easily reversible and decided to get closer and see what the wind was doing. When I got closer, the wind was doing exactly what I thought it would be doing and exactly what I feared. And it was just funneling right up to there. So I knew I couldn't stalk him the normal way that I wanted to. But because I went over there, I found a little passage around this cliff that I could see that I, I wasn't able to see from the glassing knob. And I could go around and come out on top of the buck's bed. And then the wind would be perfect. The problem was I wasn't able to see while like while I was doing this stalk around this passageway, I wasn't able to see if the buck had come out or not. So I, was, I would lose sight of where he was coming out during the whole sock, stock. And then the only time I'd be able to see was when I was right on top of him. So I just decided to go for it. As long as the wind held, I was going to stalk in on that spot, even if I don't, didn't know for sure where he was. And I knew he would be standing up soon based on the way that the Silver Stallion was, you know, looking back and all that. So I got over there to the to his bed or where I thought his bed was, the wind was just ripping at this point, which was perfect for stalking. It was covering my sound. Um, it had rained a little bit on and off, which helps help the sound a lot. But on the gravel, the rain doesn't really help unless the rain is coming down, like there's noise. So I got over there and there was just no sign of Ironside. So I was super bummed because the Silver Stallion went up into this thick stuff and I lost sight of him pretty quick. And if Ironside did the same thing, it was going to be the end of that. <laughs> it was just going to be a complete bust. So by this point, it's around six or six 30. It took me a while to get over there, just moving so slowly. So, but this time I had a choice to make so I could keep still hunting through that area, hoping to run into Ironside. I could go back to the glassing knob and see if I could relocate them. And then, uh, or I could check out the feeding grounds that they had fed into last night now that I was above them and the wind was on my side and I knew that neither buck was bedded anymore so I decided to do that last one so check the feeding ground but first I went to look at this bed and Ironside I mean he had been in there for a few hours this afternoon because I saw him go through that passage um, back into this feeding area but then I wanted to check his other bed the bed that he would had been in for that couple hours, I was watching him all day. So I wanted to check that bed because there was a way to out the backside of that bed where he had come in from. There's like a little, it looked like there was a passageway back behind to get out into the feeding ground. So I was like, I'm going to just sneak over there, check out that bed and see if there's a way out the back. And I went up to that bed and all I found was thorns and this impenetrable brush. It was horrible. It was the worst. I, I couldn't believe that this buck had just pushed through all these thorns, so many thorns. So I didn't go up into that bed because I would just get snagged up so bad. So I didn't go into that bed and I went down around kind of this 
the normal way through this little passage and there's this rock face above it and of course I had an arrow knocked this whole time just because you know I'm creeping around hoping to find a bedded buck or a buck feeding and then sure enough I come around below this rock face and up above me I see antler tips 55 yards above me to my left so I immediately crouch down I lean on my left side I saw I'm leaning up against this rock face looking upwards to my left and I mean it's steep it's like probably a 45 degree angle rock face so it's steep but it's not too steep to walk on especially they have all these cracks and grooves in it and you can put your feet in and it's really quiet too so I crouch down and I ranged the antler tips but then he put his head down I could tell he was feeding so I crouched down and I scoot up a little closer the wind is still really good it's just blowing right in my face and it's and it's pretty strong too it's covering up any potential sound that I might make so I range this rock where I think he's going to come out the rock was exactly 50 yards. So I'm like, perfect. This is this is going to be amazing. I, I, I shoot a three pin slider. So I have 30, 40, 50. My bottom pin is 50. So I didn't have to dial or anything. I can just hold dead on if this buck steps out right in front of the rock that I ranged at 50 yards. So I can just see his head. So I, I get in this position and then I decide it's going to be a lot better if I'm standing instead of crouching on this rock face. So I stand up waiting for this buck to stand stand out. And sure enough, he lifts up his head, stands out. And all I can see is his head and his neck. And he's looking straight at me. And I know he sees me because he's, poke, he's poking out his head. And I'm poking out above the, the rock face. And I definitely stand out. So here I am standing in front of the biggest buck of my life. And I have no choice but to just draw my bow right in front of him. And I drew as slowly and as still as possible. And I just draw back. And then I get to full draw. And then I settled in. He's still just staring right at me. I know he can bolt at any second. But I can still only see his head and his neck and a little bit of his front shoulder. So I lean out a little bit more so I can see his vitals. Which are now just inches away from the rock face that I'm standing on. And I knew I had to thread the needle but I felt confident. I'm holding steady. He's perfectly broadside, but I can just see a sliver between the rock and his vitals. And then I just let the arrow fly. And then whack, I see my arrow go straight over his back and hit the rock that I ranged. So I immediately knew what had happened. He was farther in front of that rock than I thought. And I just shot right over him. So Ironside just takes off down the mountain without a second look. And I went up to look at the spot and I found his tracks where he had ran where he had kicked up the dirt and it was about four yards in front of that rock. So I should have shot for 45, aimed a little lower on that buck. It was the steep upward angle shot. So when the buck covered the rock, I wrongly assumed that he was standing right at 50, but in reality, he was more like 45 or 46 yards. Plus he ducked a little bit because he was on alert, staring straight at me. And then when the bow goes off, he, you know, ducks down so he can jump. And at 45 yards, the buck has plenty of time to jump and, you know, jump the string as they say. So that plus being shooting four or five yards high, just, it was a clean miss. I found half my arrow. Um, there's no sign of blood or anything. Plus I just, I saw it hit the rock and I heard it just whack the rock. But so that was a huge bummer. But if I'm being honest, I wasn't super upset about the miss. So yeah, I would have preferred that it went differently, but I did everything right. And after making lots of mistakes on the first couple days, the right thing to do, and what I learned is that the right thing to do most of the time with mule deer hunting in the high country is to be patient. Make the small decisions that you can quickly reverse if you need to, and then check in again and see if that what the right thing to do is. So, and definitely don't try to cheat the wind and then you have to be stealthy. So these are like things that I learned in just the first 
couple days. So that was a huge bummer. But when I was walking back to the glassing spot or to, to, to pick up my stuff, I dropped my pack down below the cliffs. When I was walking back, like I was thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, I'm like not super bummed. Like I did everything right. I just, except for judging the range. So I should have shot lower, should have shot for 45 instead of 50. But other than that, I did everything right. And I know that this is the biggest buck in the area because, and, and for me, I was willing to shoot just any legal buck and to be able to get a stock on the biggest buck in the area and actually get a clean shot or a clean opportunity, not a clean shot. I was actually very happy. So it's not always about killing the animal. It's about learning. It's about the adventure. It's about understanding animal behavior. And I've learned so much from the mistakes that I made and all that is just, just bonus, you know? So even though I didn't get a clean shot at Ironside, I mean, I I keep saying that, even though I didn't, I I didn't get to harvest Ironside and take him home with me. I, that buck gets to live another day. I still have time in the season. I'm still going to go after him. I think maybe we'll see. I'm in a predicament right now because I only have a few more days left to hunt during the archery season and I have an elk tag too. There's no elk in that area too. So I have to kind of choose if I'm going to go hunt elk or hunt deer. So I haven't totally decided yet. (laughs) So anyway, and this was day three on this hunt. So there's still two more days after this and I'm not going to go through all of it and we're we're already pretty deep into the podcast here, but the next two days weren't super eventful. The next day I actually didn't even see a single deer until 7.30 PM right before dark. So I don't know if Ironside just blew down the mountain and, and like, I don't, I don't know what happened. It was also really hot. The smoke came in pretty thick too. So I think that might've slowed the, the deer down a little bit, but I seriously didn't even see a single deer the next day until 7 30 PM. Like it was, the sun was behind the mountain. It was already getting dark and at eight o'clock it was dark. So yeah. And <laughs> funny enough, the, the one deer that I saw or the one buck that I saw right at 7.30, was the Silver Stallion, and he was way down the mountain. So even though I saw him go straight up and disappear, at some point he just like, he got out of there, either early in the morning the next day or that evening. Anyway, so I saw him pop out at 7.30 right before dark. And then the next day, it was really only a half day um, because I had to to get home by Saturday night. So by, you know, Saturday I hunted in the afternoon and then uh, I hiked down the mountain as I was home by the evening or uh yeah i was i was home by yeah like eight 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 thirty or nine or something so anyway what an epic adventure like like i said i was even though i didn't harvest a buck on that trip i was just extremely happy i learned a ton being alone in the high country is just it is a lot of fun <laughs> it's like type two fun you know if we i've talked about that before it's like type one fun is like actual fun type two fun is the the fun that when you look back on it the day after, you're like, oh, that was fun. But in the moment, you're like, this is the worst. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, anyway, type two fun. Anyway, if you want to see more pictures of Ironside, go to huntthewest.us slash 63. Um, or you can go to my Instagram. I have it saved in the highlights because um, I learned how to do that. I'm learning Instagram, you guys. <laughs> I'm learning how to do stories and stuff. I don't know. I've just never been super into social media. But if you want to follow me over there at huntthewest.us, you can follow me on Instagram. As always, you can email me at skylar at huntthewest.us. I answer every email and every DM on Instagram. So if you want to contact me, that those are the two best ways to do it. And as always, if you want to support the show, use the links, buy merch, huntthewest.us slash shop. And, um, but the take home from, from this episode that I want you all to take is you got to be able to adapt your tactics, especially when you're hunting in different conditions. So you have to 
if spot and stock is not going to work because it's too noisy or, or uh, too crunchy, you got to adapt, you know, go to glassing and ambushing or whatever you need to do. You just got to stay flexible and then make small decisions that can be easily reversed if you need to. The, the only way that I got a chance on either side is because I made a small decision to get a little closer and see what the wind was doing over there. And because of that, I found that passageway. And because I made the small decision to just assume that the best had happened. Cause like when I, when I came out behind that bed and Ironside wasn't there, I was like, there's, there's two things that could be happening. One, I spooked him. I didn't know. And he's gone. Or number two, he just walked out of his bed. He's feeding right now. Best case scenario. He's just on the other side of this hill. And that's what happened was the best case scenario. So you just kind of have to assume the best, or I guess hope for the best, assume the worst. Like I, one thing I've heard Remy Warren say is like, if you lose sight of the deer, just assume that he's still there, but simultaneously also assume that he's not. So you got to like stalk in on the spot, assuming that he's there, but also kind of keep your head up and assume that he kind of moved. So it's kind of, you got to keep both things in this, in your mind at the same time. And that's what I did. And it actually worked really well. And then I just made this mistake of not ranging it correctly, not shooting for the right yardage. So anyway, that's the take home message for this. Stay flexible, learn from your mistakes, fail quickly, fail often, and get out there and hunt the West.